morning. All right, let's uh, begin with the word of prayer and let's pray for Paul Hessler. He's at Henry Ford Hospital there in Detroit. He had an inflamed pancreas and they're trying to figure out why it's inflamed. Right now they um, put a stent in his bile duct, uh, which was the pancreas was cutting off the flow to it. So uh, anyway, he's doing well. He's in great spirits, but he would would, uh, appreciate your prayer. So let's pray for him now and, and for our time together. Lord, thank you for uh, the ability that we have, really, in uh, that comes from the Holy Spirit, for us to come to Christ and to come to Him with all of our fears and our troubles, and know that He will answer and respond in the way that will best suit our uh, growth in godliness and our pursuit of knowing You better. And, Lord, we pray that you would use this time in Paul and Tina's life to strengthen their faith and to help them to understand more clearly the, uh, the, the trials and the sufferings of life so that they can uh, glorify you and help others to do the same as they go through similar trials. We pray for Paul's uh, condition that you would just strengthen his body and use the doctors and the skill of the nurses and the uh, facilities there to be able to determine the problem and to be able to find a remedy for it. And we pray that through this would be a a time where uh, Jesus Christ could be magnified in His life. Lord, help us now as we consider uh, how we can be better personal ministers to one another. And we pray uh, that You would help us to understand Your Word properly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you turn to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. When a friend or fellow church member confides in you and seeks change from the current struggles that they are facing, which is what this class has been about, these last four classes and now this one, um, what what you need to recognize is they will seldom, if ever, come to you and ask, for you to help them to change their heart. You know, they're not going to come to you and say, listen, I'm dealing with this problem here, and so would you be willing to, to help me to, to change my heart? Uh, instead, they're, they're going to talk about their circumstances. They're going to ask how their circumstances can be changed. And so um, you need to recognize that, as we've talked about, that, that the primary change that needs to happen is in the heart. And so you want to see deeper and lasting change. And one of the ways that we can do that, one of the ways that we can be ambassadors of Christ, Christ's mouthpiece to them, is to follow these four steps that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. Um, and they are love, know, speak, and do. And this comes from Paul Tripp's book called Instrument in the Redeemer's Hand. And it's just a... Um, really a a, a valuable resource when it comes to biblical counseling and how to help other people who are in need of change. In fact, the subtitle is People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. So that's us. We're in need of change, and we're trying to help other people who are also in need of change. And um, and so in in there, he he, uh, carves out four main principles or words that we need to to do in order to 
to uh, help someone when we're ministering to them. Now, this is not a, a like a conveyor belt that if we do these four things, love, know, speak to, then uh, we're going to be guaranteed success. There's going to be the, the, the change that we're looking for. But, but rather, it means that ministering biblically to the person uh, happens in this way. The first one, love, we're going to look at over the next two weeks, this week and next week. Love has to do with the establishing and building on relationships. Um, no has to do with understanding the situation clearly. I want to understand what their situation is before I speak to it. And then speak involves bringing God's Word to the conversation so that they can see the change. And then do is actually applying these insights that come from God's Word. So this week we're going to look at um, at the first step there, the first principle, which is love. Well, it had been two months since you had seen your doctor last and the last time it was pneumonia. This time it was a broken arm. But you were dreading to see him just like you always are. Not because of the pain of the the change that's going to have to happen or the medication that has to be taken place or to reset the arm or whatever. That wasn't what you were fearing. But rather what you were fearing was your doctor's terrible bedside manners. And sure enough, the door opens and then he walks with the most disappointed look on his face and he says, what are you doing here again? And you tell him you broke, you broke your arm and how it happened. And he rolls his eyes and says, when am I ever going to see you when you're healthy? Now, this doctor may have all the right answers and he may be very helpful at, at um, diagnosing problems and figuring out the best way to correct them. But... He has a problem with with how to show love to his patient and patients, and in that way, he's not a great doctor. How much more true is that for the church? Paul warns the people in Corinth, the believers there, of this very thing. He says, if you have all the wealth and wisdom and power in the world, and and you want to to pass that on to someone else, it's of no value if you have no love. It's like you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's not going to amount to anything. We might look at the church and wish that we could just come to one service, just one service where we didn't have to hear about someone else's problem. But that's because we are more concerned about ourselves than about others. We think that people with their problems are actually obstacles to us. They're getting in our way when what we need to recognize is that God has actually placed us here to help handle other people's problems. And that's what this quotation's uh, about here from his uh, chapter on love. And it is, the church, Tripp says, the church is full of people dealing with the effects of sin, people who are not fully formed into the image of Christ. That's what the church is made up of. It's made up of people who are experienced the effects of sin. And this is the very church that Christ died to save. And if we consider what Christ has done for us, it helps us to consider how we ought to treat other people. So look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God is the one, or, or excuse me, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that that amazing? That Christ sacrificed Himself, verse 31, that God is on our side. And the way that we know that is because Christ sacrificed Himself for us. That is, He left the comforts of heaven so that He could be exposed to our problems. Jesus didn't have the mentality that we sometimes have when we come to deal with other people. That is, I don't want to have to listen to their problems. Jesus was willing to be exposed to those problems and and, uh, and He did so in, in the greatest way He possibly could by coming to this earth and dying for us. So in, in principle, we don't have a problem... Um, with love, the problem is that we don't want love that is so demanding, right? If if I asked you, do you want to be loving? Everyone's going to say yes. But but the question is, do we want to 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 display or express love even when it is demanding, or especially when it is demanding? Sometimes we only serve people as long as it doesn't include us listening to a catalog of their problems. We'd rather just you know, kind of just send buckets of water onto their feet instead of getting over there and getting down on their knees and washing their feet like Jesus did. But this is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He was willing to lay down His life in order to serve us. That's what Mark tells us. Uh, he records Jesus saying that in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Turn to Luke chapter 14 because Jesus calls us to do the same. Jesus didn't come to the earth to be served, and so we learn from His model. Remember last week we looked at following the Wonderful Counselor. And so if we're going to follow Jesus' model and how He dealt with people, then we need to recognize that we didn't come we, we don't come to the services. We don't come to interact with other believers in order to be served, but to serve and to give our lives. Obviously, we can't give them as a ransom. We can't pay for their sin, but we give our lives in a similar way to how Jesus did. So Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says, we need to be willing to go to the greatest extreme to follow Him. We can't be a part of Christ's life-giving work without being willing to lay down our lives uh, ourselves. So let me ask you, how do you see people in your life? How do you see the people in this church? Do you see them as a source of personal frustration, as an obstacle to get what you want? Maybe which is just a 
one peaceful Sunday where I can just sit and listen to the Word of God and then go home. Okay, it, it, are people seen as, as an obstacle? If I were to ask the people closest to you, would they say that your life is marked by love? It, it, is it marked by love that it even displays itself in demanding ways? And uh, that, that's something that we all need to, to think about and wrestle with. So if we're going to help people, we need to get past that idea that, that I'm coming to be served. Okay, We need to get past that. And instead, we need to be thinking about how can I provoke others to love and good works? And that's what we're going to look at next. Any questions so far on this long introduction? My uh, seminary professor said, you've got to be careful about having long introductions, otherwise the porch becomes bigger than the house. And you don't want that. So, keep the porch small. All right. Seeing people redemptively or building redemptive relationships. The first aspect of ministering to other people, and remember, we want to see genuine change. The first aspect is to show love to them, and that happens by building redemptive relationships. Now, think back to Romans 8. Jesus built a redemptive relationship with us. He first justified us, and then He has, since that time, has sought to sanctify us. He's changing us into His image. And I would suggest to you that our relationship with other people ought to be the same way. We should seek to first see them saved, and then we would want to see them sanctified, grow closer to Christ. And so seeing people lovingly and redemptively means three things. Number one, God has a higher goal for our relationship than our own personal happiness. If your final goal in life is personal happiness, you will uh, actually live a pretty miserable life. Uh, God has a higher goal for our relationship. That doesn't mean that Christianity is boring and difficult, and, and uh, it is difficult, but uh, it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's always challenging and, and, and it's something that we should, we should not take any pleasure in. That's not the point. The point is, is we sometimes exalt our own personal happiness over God's desires for us. Imagine what that would be like for Jesus who said, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And if he was only concerned about his own personal happiness and not his Father's, he would have been very disappointed and lived a very miserable life. Number two, God wants our relationships to result in change that He works in us and that He works through us. So our relationships ought to be in the context of change. That is, I'm seeking to help change someone else and I'm seeking to have them help change me. People in need of change, helping people in need of change. Number three, the third way that we see people lovingly and redemptively is that we need to build relationships that encourage this work of change. All right, so God's work in us is the model. Back to Romans 8, God worked in you to change you eternally by granting you justification, and then He still works in you to change you uh, continually through the process of sanctification. Our, we have a similar model that we must follow, or we should follow that model. All right, so that means, first of all, God's redemptive activity happens within relationships. If 
God is going to redeem people. He's, he's chosen to do it through relationships. Next, God's first step in changing us to, is to draw us into relationship with Him. Okay, so here we're trying to see what kind of model God, or what kind of process God used to draw us to Himself, and we're going to draw some principles from that for ourselves. And then third, our relationships are, are essential to the work that God is completing in us and in others. Our relationships are essential to how God is working in us. For example, when a husband and wife get into a heated argument, I don't know if you can relate, but maybe you got neighbors that have... That, um, but, but when they get into a heated argument, it is one way that God actually exposes their hearts. It, it exposes the heart of both people. And if the couple remembers this, that God is actually seeking to expose some of the things in their heart and change them, then this couple will respond in ways that are consistent with the Bible's view of love. But if their goal is personal happiness, then the conversation will be nothing more than a pursuit of personal pleasure without the thought of the other person. And the argument will go on. And and these two, this couple, may claim to love each other, but at the level of the heart, they are committed only to getting what they want out of the other person. Again, we see people more as a commodity. That is, what can I exchange? What can I exchange in order to get what I want? I want personal pleasure, so I'll exchange the needs of my spouse or the needs of this other person that I need to be relating to rightly. So our love for the other person actually shapes how we handle the struggle that faces the person with whom we are talking. If we're seeking just to get this obstacle out of the way, then we will say, a few things or simply listen but not show concern for seeing change, pushing them closer to Christ. But if we're seeking to build redemptive relationships, and this goes beyond uh, relationship with our spouse, our primary goal will be to shape them in a deep and lasting way by pointing them to Christ and pointing them to the love that God offers and the holiness that God demands. So our goal must be the same as God's goal. And that is personal transformation for the glory of God. Personal transformation for the glory of God. This is this is the um, this is what God has designed you to do. He's designed you to be transformed to the glory of God and to help transform others for this in the same way. So, what does a redemptive relationship look like? kind of looked at some of the motivations behind it. Um, scripture highlights four, action, four actions when it calls us to love someone in a way that promotes uh, the work of change in their heart. And we're going to look at the first two this week. The first one is enter the person's world. Secondly, show the love of Christ. And then we'll look at the next two next week. Identify with their suffering and accept with agenda. Okay, any questions before we get into this first one? What does a redemptive relationship look like? How do we form these kinds of relationships? Any questions? All right, first, enter the person's world. In order to enter a person's world, Trip offers that we need to, we need to look for entry gates. Okay, he, he calls them entry gates. And uh, simply a way for us to 
to, um, to get into this person's world and help to see them change. Here's what an entry gate is not. It's not the problem. Okay, so someone comes to you and they say that this problem is really troubling them. could be about their finances or about their home or their job or whatever it is. That's not the entry gate. So that's not what we go, and, and I'll show you how this works here in just a second. It's not a specific situation or a circumstance. Okay, instead, um, f- for example, in this one, the, the person might say something about their friend committing adultery or having a problem with gossip. and might, We might quick be quick to respond with all the verses of Scripture that talk about adultery or gossip. And the whole time we're ignoring the person and what kind of struggle that they're going through, what's really at stake and the heart um, there. So, so um, an entry gate is not the problem or the circumstances. Instead, an entry gate is a person's experience of the situation. So instead of asking what are the problems this person has, the proper question is what is the person struggling with in the midst of the situation? And there will be a time to actually look at the specific problem, but but what is the person struggling with? So, for example, imagine that there is a, a man or a woman in our church who's been married for 25 years. I don't know if anybody's been, so I'm not thinking about anybody specifically, but I, um, just actually drawing from his example in the book. She wakes up one night or he finds out that their spouse is gone and that there's a note lying in that person's place. And in the note, the spouse that left said that they were leaving the marriage because they had found another person. Immediately after reading the note, this person from our church calls you and asks for help. How do you walk through the entry gate so that you can speak the change that will need that this person will need to experience over the days ahead? Do you just get out all the verses about divorce and marriage, right? Certainly there will be a time for that when the dust starts to settle, but but what this person is struggling with right now in the midst of the situation is how you will get into their life. What is happening right now that could rob this person of all hope? So let's think about that for a second. What kind of challenges would a person like this be facing at the time that it happens? Okay. Yeah, good. Someone else say something back there? Okay, lack of faith. Where's God in all this? You know, how can I trust the God who allows something like this to happen? Right? Anything else? Okay. Bitterness? Abandonment? Okay. How am I going to provide for the rest of my family? What's going to happen to the house? Eric? Right, yeah. Well, even if it's not a self-loathing, it's just a even a, a healthy introspection where we say, did I do something to cause this? So there's all sorts of fears and struggles that they're going through right now. And if if our answer is, you know, Ephesians 5 says that wives ought to submit to their husbands and husbands ought to... If that's our only reference of, of um, help that we have, then we will have missed our entry gate. And we will unlike, it will be unlikely for that person to come back uh, as the struggle continues. Instead, they'll think, you know, this person doesn't understand me. They don't understand what's going on. They're not even listening to what the problem is. And that person would be right because we are not seeking to build a redemptive relationship here. Instead, we're trying to 
get a quick fix, which obviously we recognize that that usually doesn't happen. Um, so maybe a better response might be something like this. You know, I can't imagine what you're going through right now, but I want you to know that I will pray for you and you can be sure that God will never leave you. And and that way, that they're, they, they will build in you a confidence that you are willing to listen and that you're most concerned not about the problem, the circumstance that's coming between them and their spouse, but you're concerned about them, right? And so we need to learn how to recognize the entry gate. So Tripp offers several ways that we can do this, and he, he does it this way. Uh, listen for four types of words. Emotional words, which are you know, words of anger or fear or things like, I can't stop crying. Listen for interpretive words like, you know, this shouldn't happen to me or I guess I got what was coming to me or life is not really worth living anymore. Listen for self-talk. I am such a failure. This always happens to me. I can't handle this anymore. And then listen for God talk. That is, what, do, what is their experience or understanding of God in the midst of this crisis? I thought I was doing what God wanted and now this. Or maybe God really doesn't answer prayers. Or how could God allow this to happen? And so our goal in this initial stage, and and again, it's not necessarily going to come through a phone call. It's not necessarily going to come, and it may, but it's not going to necessarily come when you're sitting across your desk from them. It may happen in the hallway of the church as they're just explaining. It might not be as as deep of a problem as what we're talking about. But, but what we need to see is that that we're, we need to be concerned about the person and start listening for some of these words. And our goal in this initial stage of showing love is to get them to find hope from the Scripture, that God is with you, that He can help, that He is accomplishing good through this. And is He? How do we know that God is accomplishing good in the midst of something so difficult? How do we know that? Is there a verse that you can think of that would help this person? What was it? Romans 8.28. What does that say? Right. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and to those who are called according to His purpose. So there, there's a, just a quick uh, help that you can give them and to remind them in the, in the midst of their valley that, that God is with them and that He's doing good. So suppose you were in a really bad accident or you really had a really tough day at work and you began to tell your friend about it and they responded by lecturing you about the situation. Well, you know, your accident was probably caused because you didn't put your turn signal on or, or whatever. Instead of listening to the whole story, you see your friend is looking at the obstacle rather than you. And this is what we have to... I think, avoid, uh, we need to look at the person and how they're experiencing the problem. And the reason I know that is because God's love for us is personal. And so our love for one another must be personal as well. So here are some of the ways that you can encourage a person who is struggling. And this is just uh, generic enough to be able to help someone in any situation. Okay, let them know. Let the person know that you've heard their struggle. Let the person know that you've heard their struggle. Secondly, let the person know that God is there. I'm not sure if I have these. Okay. Let the person know that God is there. 
and that he understands. One of the most common fears in struggle, just think of the ones that you've gone through even this week, is, is God really here? Does God really know? Okay, remind them that God is there. And, and how can we do this? Maybe it's through uh, a psalm. Or maybe it's through Hebrews 13.5. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says in Matthew 28, uh, verse 19, verse 20, you know, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so remind them that God is with them. Obviously, what I'm talking about here is a believer. The way that you will deal with an unbeliever is much different because they don't have the promise of Romans 8.28. Why, why do I say that? Okay, what about from... Turn to Romans 8 and just look at the verse for me and see if you can tell me from the verse why I say that. Why, why does an unbeliever not have the same hope that we do that God works all of their circumstances together for good? Right. There you go. So if you're looking at the verse, verse 28, sometimes you hear this verse just quoted and they stop at the part where it says, God causes all things to work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good. But but the, the qualification there, Paul's talking to believers and about believers, and he's saying to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. So the way that you deal with an unbeliever is going to be much different. Okay, the the only hope that they have is turning to Christ, and so. Um, but for believers, this is what I'm primarily referring to because this primarily is going to happen within the context of the church, and I'm not saying the church building. I'm talk, talking about the gathering of believers or the relationships of believers. Let the person know that God is there and that He understands their struggle. Thirdly, let the person know that you will stand with them in the midst of their struggle. And uh, hopefully, in these initial stages, you'll see that they are willing to share some of their details about their struggle, uh, that they're willing to continue on in relationship. Hopefully, you'll also see that there is a vertical hope that this person will start by trusting God and and um, allow you to help push them toward that. And hopefully, they'll be committed to the process. Now that they know that they have someone who's willing to listen, and um, you know, now they're more willing to continue on in a relationship, which would um, bring about change. So, Scripture highlights four actions when it calls us to love someone in ways that promotes change, God's work of change. The first is enter the person's world. Okay, so that's what we've been talking about so far. The second is show the love of Christ. Show the love of Christ. Any questions so far before we get into this final point today? All right, show the love of Christ. Think with me for a second. Actually, think by yourself. Of a person who... The the person that has had the most profound effect of genuine Christian change in your life. Who is it that's had the most profound effect of genuine change in your life? Maybe it wasn't changed because of a crisis, or maybe it was. Okay, But think of that person right now. What was it about them that made their ministry to you so effective? Was it that they always had the right words on the tip of their tongue and they always knew how to answer you precisely? 
I would suggest to you that the thing that that um, that stood out most to me, to the person that that had the the most significant change, was their love. That they were willing to stick with me until the end. They were willing to forgive me uh, because of what I had done. They were willing to stand with me when others were deserting me. Right. I'm not saying that that what we say to the person in that moment is is of no value. I think our words are critical, but without love, they are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. They're they're valueless. And so what we need to show, especially at the beginning, sometimes uh love can cover over a multitude of foolish words, right? We say love covers over a multitude of sins, but but just showing love can can help cover over um you know uh some of some of the words that they probably need to hear and we don't really know what the right words to say are. We're going to talk more about that as we think about the process because sometimes we think we need to have the answer right there but but again when we first get into this relationship where we see this significant struggle that they're going through the first thing that they need is hope that God is with them. So that's just Remember that. That's the main thing you need. To, and then as you start to get more details about their struggle, and then you can move on and and help them in a more pr- profound way. But then you'll have time to kind of research some of these things, study them, look at the Scriptures. So how do we put on the right clothes for the job, showing the love of Christ? Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Here Paul calls us to personal ministry, ministering to other people, other believers. So let's start with verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Okay, so here Paul is talking collectively to the church in Colossae. He's saying, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You are called into one body, okay? And you need to be encouraging one another. One of the ways that we do that is by singing to each other, verse 16. Okay, so the point is that we need to have a relationship with other people. We need to have a personal ministry to other people. But notice how he begins. Uh, In order for us to be able to do that, look at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So before we go out, okay, or before we uh, develop these redemptive relationships, it starts with the close of love, we could say. And it's put on this heart of compassion. All these words are describing what a loving person would be. He's compassionate, kindness, humble, gentle, patient. He bears with one another, verse 13. He forgives. And that's what I suggested is the kind of person that is able to help you in your time of need. They're the one that loves you. 
and um, is concerned about real change. And so God changes people not because of our right words necessarily, but because we said those words with a heart of compassion. Again, don't minimize the importance of proper, properly expressed truth. Um, but, but often um, we we can say the right words, like that doctor at the beginning, right? We can say all the right words, but say them with the wrong tone or with the wrong attitude or without any love, and they're it turns into him being one of the worst doctors rather than one of the best. Four main reasons to show the love of Christ in personal ministry. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. The first is that it provides protection from you. What you're going to find is that if you help other people, okay, you're going to, you're going to be sinned against you're actually going to be sinned against the person you're trying to help. It's like standing next to a puddle. Hey, if you're standing next to a puddle, you're going to get dirty because someone's going to jump in the puddle. And uh, the person that you're dealing with is right near a puddle right now, and so are you. And so don't be surprised if you get splashed. Uh, if you're helping someone with anger, don't be surprised if that anger gets turned toward you at some point. If you're, if you're dealing with someone who's struggling with mistrust, then don't be surprised if they fail to trust you at times. Okay, and, and so the danger for you is that you could get trapped in the very sin that you're trying to help them get out of. Look at Galatians 6. Someone read verse 1. Paul is very clear that that those who are mature ought to help those who uh, are in the midst of a struggle. And you do it with a spirit of gentleness. But keep in mind that you need to watch yourself because you too might also be tempted. Now, now the very next verse says, bear one another's burden. So Paul's not saying, okay, uh, you know, just... If it's too hard or if you, if you don't think that you're going to be able to do it, then, then don't. But we need to take care of, in fact, look down to verse 5. For each one will bear his own load. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. So how, how is this possible? We bear our own load and we bear one another's burdens? The point is, is that we need to work to try not to be uh, a, a, um, an obstacle, if we can use the word I was using before, an obstacle to other people. But at the same time, we try to help people with the struggles that they're bearing. So if you think about it like load, try to carry your own backpack. But then when someone's carrying a huge boulder, get over there and help them. Um, what we tend to do is we try to, you know, we don't help the person who's got the huge weight on them. And we take our backpack and try to pass it off to someone else. And, and Paul's saying, no, you need to carry your own load, take care of your own responsibilities, but also seek how you can help out other people. And and when you do, make sure that you guard your own heart because you too might also be tempted. And so when you show the love of Christ in personal ministry, it actually helps protect you. Um, 
recognize that, that Christ is seeking to work through you and wants to see change happen through you, um, but, but watch out for yourself at the same time. Second reason to show love in personal ministry is, is that it offers a living example. You know, we could tell people stories of compassion, but the best thing that we can do is actually to show them compassion. Instead of talking about humility, show them what it looks like to be humble. Okay, that that's a, a better way to handle uh, the situation. Thirdly, it gives evidence of what the Lord can do. It shows the person that, you know, if I'm following the example of Christ and functioning as an, amb- an ambassador, I will live as evidence of the, what the Lord says is true. And this person that's ministering to me right now, he's showing evidence of what the Lord's saying being true. And so I'm going to follow that person as he follows Christ. And I see that as he's gone through struggles, he's been able to to look to Christ and it's resulted in changed life. And so I need to follow that person as well. And fourthly, it keeps Christ central. The hope we offer to another person, to ourselves when we're when we're uh you know, carrying our own load is not a list of strategies or helpful articles, although those although those may be a part of what we do. The main thing we want to get across is that our hope is in Christ. We are not gurus when it comes to change. We are simply instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We want them to be able to see that, and so we show love to them. God has called you and I, or you and me, to minister to others around us. And so are you willing to get splashed by a little dirt in order to see Christ bring about genuine change in someone else's life? May Christ strengthen us for this task as we work to be part of His work of transformation in other people's lives. Any questions? Comments? Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think uh Paul would disagree with you. I wouldn't disagree with you what you just said. Um the the point is is that at the initial stages you want to listen but also you want to um speak the truth in love. You know, like Ephesians says, we want to be able to to pass on truth because if if you don't say anything to them that could actually be more detrimental to because now they have all these weird ideas about where's God? He's not in my life. And if we don't even say something as simple as God is with you, that's the main point of what he's trying to show. Okay, get get that get that across. Start to to put that down payment of love so that they can see that. So that then you're willing, you're you're able to get to the next step, which is what we're going to be moving towards, which is actually speaking the change to them talking about the word but in the initial stages yes it is listening in fact you know if you think about job and his three friends 
the best thing that they did was when they came and just sat with them for seven days and said nothing. But then they started talking, right? And they didn't really examine the situation properly. But at the same time, we are not Job's friends. And um, yes, listening ought to be a big part of what we do. But it should not be the only thing. If we just sat and listened to people, we would fail in our changing and seeing God change them. Well, some people don't want answers. That's the problem. Well, um, I would suggest that that Paul would would recommend that we. Now, I'm not talking about Paul Tripp. I'm talking about Paul the Apostle here. That we ought to speak the truth in love. He, um, you know, I, I think your point is well taken. That we ought to be quick to listen. That's the way God is with us. Slow to speak, but we ought to speak. And uh, we'll we'll get to that part of it later. But um, but in the initial stages, yes, it's primarily about listening. All right, good. Any other thoughts? Quickly. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the change that you have produced in our lives. We recognize that that genuine change comes from you, but we're thankful for the conduits that you've used, the people in our lives who have been instruments in your hands and who have um, spoken in a, a word at a good timing that was like apples of gold and setting, settings of silver. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to to grow in wisdom and in love, and so that we can help push people toward genuine transformation to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.